the next best predictor of lifetime success is conscientiousness. Well, so, and of the, of the two aspects of conscientiousness, say, orderliness and, and industriousness, the better predictor is industriousness. So the question is, well, what can you do about your industriousness? And the answer to that is, well, that's kind of rough too, because there's a strong genetic component. But you can work on micro habits with regards to your conscientiousness. And I think the best micro habits, and this is partly to do with this future authoring program processes, I think the best thing you can do with regards to your conscientiousness is to set up some aims for yourself, goals that you actually value. And the future authoring program helps people do that. And basically, it does a, a situational analysis of, it helps you do a situational analysis of your life more than a psychological analysis, I would say. And so, so the questions are something like, well, all right, you're going to have to put some effort into your life. And you need to be motivated to do that. And so what are the potential sources of motivation? Well, you could think about them in, in the big five manner. You know, if you're extroverted, you want friends. If you're agreeable, you want an intimate relationship. If you're disagreeable, you want to win competitions. If you're open, you want to engage in creative activity. If you're high in eroticism, you want security. Okay, so those are all sources of potential motivation that you could draw on, that you could tailor to your own, you know, your own personality. But then there are dimensions that you want to consider your life across. And so we ask people about, well, you know, if you could have your life the way you wanted it in three to five years, if you were taking care of yourself properly, you know, what would you want from your friendships? What would you want from your intimate relationship? How would you like to structure your family? What do you want for your career? Well, how are you going to use your time outside of your job? And how are you going to regulate your mental, physical, mental and physical health and maybe also your drug and alcohol use? Because that's, that's a good place to auger down, you know, because alcoholism, for example, wipes out, you know, five to ten percent of people. So you want to keep that under control. And then and then, so maybe, you know, you, you, you develop a vision of what, your life, what you would like your life to be, and that associates the, so the goal, well, once the goal is established, and then you break down the goal into microprocesses that you can implement, the microprocesses become rewarding in proportion, in relation to their uh, causal association with the goal, and that tangles in your your incentive reward system. You know, we talked about the dopaminergic incentive reward system, and that's the thing that keeps you moving forward. And the way it works is that it works better if it produces positive emotion when it can see you moving towards a valued goal. Okay, well, what's the implication of that? Better have a valued goal, because otherwise you can't get any positive motivation working out. And so the more valuable the goal, in principle, the more the microprocesses associated with that goal start to take on a positive charge. And so what that means is, well, you get up in the morning and you're excited about the day. You're ready to go. And so as far as I can tell, what you do is you specify your long-term ideal. Maybe you also specify a place you want to stay the hell away from so that you're terrified to fail as well as excited about succeeding, because that's also useful. You specify your goal. You, you, do, that, you do that in so, some sense as a unique individual. You want, to, you want to specify goals that make you say, oh, if that could happen as a consequence of my efforts, it would clearly be worthwhile. Because the question always is, why do something? Because doing nothing is easy. You just sit there and you don't do anything. That's real easy. The question is, why would you ever do anything? And the answer to that has to be because you've determined by some means that it's worthwhile. And then the next question might be, well, where should you look for worthwhile things? And one would be, well, you could consult your own temperament. And the other would be, well, you kind of look at how Look at what it is that people accrue that's valuable across the lifespan. Look, look what, so you do a structural analysis of the subcomponents of human existence, and I already did that. You need a family, you need friends. Like, you don't need to have all these things, but you better have most of them. Family, friends, career, educational goals, plans for, you know, time outside of work, 
attention to your mental and physical health, etc. You know, those are, that's what life is about. And if you don't have any of those things, well, then all you've got left is misery and suffering. So that's, that's, a, bad, that's a bad deal for you. So, so once you, but once you set up that, that goal structure, let's say, and that's really, in many, in many ways, that's what you should be doing at university. Is, is, that's exactly what you should be doing, is trying to figure out who it is that you're trying to be, right? And you, you aim at that. And then you use everything you learn as a means of building that person that you want to be. And, and I really mean want to be. I don't mean should be, even those things, those things are going to overlap. And it's important to distinguish between those because that's partly, and this is back down to the micro-routine analysis, so if I was saying, well, you're going to try to make yourself more industrious, okay, number one, specify your damn goals, because how are you going to hit something if you don't know what it is? That isn't going to happen. And often people won't specify their goals too because they don't like to specify conditions for failure. So if you keep yourself all vague and foggy, which is real easy, because that's just a matter of not doing as well, then you don't know when you fail. And people might say, well, I really don't want to know when I fail because that's painful. So I'll, I'll keep myself blind about when I fail. That's fine, except you'll fail all the time then. You just won't know it until you've failed so badly that you're done. And that can easily happen by the time you're 40. So, so I would recommend that you don't let that happen. So that's willful blindness, right? You could have known, but you chose not to. Okay, so once you get your goal structure set up, you think, okay, if I could have this life, it looks like that might be worth living, despite the fact that it's going to be, you know, anxiety-provoking and threatening, and there's going to be some suffering and loss involved and all of that, obviously. The goal is to, to have a vision for your life such that, all things considered, that justifies your effort. Okay, so then what do you do? Well, then, then you turn down to the micro-routines. It's like, okay, well, this is what I'm aiming for. How does that instantiate itself day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month? And that's where something like a schedule can be unbelievably useful. Google Calendar. It's like, make a damn schedule and stick to it. Okay, so what's the rule with the schedule? It's not a bloody prison. That's the first thing that people do wrong. They say, well, I don't like to have, follow a schedule. It's like, well, what kind of schedule are you setting up? Well, I, sh I have to do this, then I have to do this, then I have to do this. You know, and then I just go play video games. Because who wants to do all these things that I have to do? It's like, wrong. Set the damn schedule up so that you have the day you want. That's the trick. It's like, okay, I've got tomorrow. If I was going to set it up so it was the best possible day I could have, practically speaking, what would it look like? Well, then you schedule that. And obviously, there's a bit of responsibility that's going to go along with that, because if you have any sense, one of the things that you're going to insist upon is that at the end of the day, you're not in worse shape than you were that, than at the beginning of the day, right? Because that's a stupid day. If you have a bunch of those in a row, you just dig, you know, you dig yourself a hole and then you bury yourself in it. It's like, sorry, that's just not a good strategy. It's a bad strategy. So maybe 20% of your day has to be responsibility and obligation, or maybe it's more than that, depending on how far behind you are. But even that, you can, you can ask yourself, okay, well, I've got these responsibilities. I have to schedule the damn things in. What's the right ratio of responsibility to reward? And you can ask yourself that, just like you'd negotiate with someone who is working for you. It's like, okay, you got to work tomorrow. Okay, so I want you to work tomorrow. And you might say, okay, well, what are you going to do for me that makes it likely that I'll work for you? Well, you could ask yourself that, you know. So maybe you do an hour of, of responsibility and then you play a video game for 15 minutes. I don't know, whatever turns your crank, man. But, you know, you have to negotiate with yourself and not tyrannize yourself. Like you're negotiating with someone that you care for, that you would like to be productive and have a good life. And, and that's how you make the schedule. It's like, and then you look at the day and you think, well, if I had that day, that'd be good. Great. 
you know, and you, you're useless and horrible, so you'll probably only hit it with about 70% accuracy, but that beats the hell out of zero, right? And if you hit it even with 50% accuracy, another rule is, well, aim for 51% the next week, or 50.5% for God's sake, or because you're, you're going to hit that position where things start to loop back positively and spiral you upward. And so, so that's one way that you can work on your conscientiousness, is plan a life you'd like to have. And, and you do that partly by referring to social norms. That's more or less rescuing your father from the belly of the whale. But the way, other way you do that is by having a little conversation with yourself about as, as if you don't really know who you are. Because you know what you're like. You won't do what you're told. You won't do what you tell yourself to do. You must have noticed that. It's like you're a bad employee and a worse boss. And, and both of those work, you know, for you. You don't know what you want to do, and then when you tell yourself what to do, you don't do it anyways. You should fire yourself and find someone else to be. But, but you know, my point is, is that you have to understand that you're not your own servant, so to speak. You're someone that you have to negotiate with, and, that's, and you're someone that you want to present the opportunity of having a good life to. And that's hard for people, because they don't like themselves very much. So, you know, they're always like cracking the whip and then procrastinating, and cracking the whip and then procrastinating, and it's like, God, it's so boring and... It's such a pathetic way of spending your time. And you know what that's like, because you probably waste like six hours a day. And I think we did an economic calculation about that a while back, right? Your time's probably worth 50 bucks an hour, something like that. I mean, you're not getting paid that now, but you're young, and so this is investment time, and what you do now is going to multiply its effects in the future. So, so let's say it's 50 bucks an hour, which is perfectly reasonable. So if you waste six hours a day, and you are, then you're wasting about $2,000 a week or about $100,000 a year. So like, go ahead, but that's what it's costing you every hour. And you need to know what your damn time is worth. So let's say it's not 50 bucks, it's 30, whatever. Maybe it's 100, it's somewhere in that range. One of the things you should be asking yourself is, when you spend an hour, was that, well, what if I paid someone 50 bucks to have had that hour? And if the answer is no, it's like, well, maybe you should do something else with your time. And it depends on whether or not you think that your time's worthwhile. But the funny thing about not assuming that is if you assume your time isn't worthwhile, what happens is you don't just sit around sort of randomly in a state of responsibility-less bliss. What you do is you suffer existentially. And so that seems like a stupid solution. I'm told that my overanalyzing is a double-edged sword, but I'm suffering from being this way. Yeah, well, you're probably you know, high in openness, and maybe you're very verbally intelligent, so you're pretty much stuck with that. Maybe you've got a bit of mania to you, too, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I find relief when I drink alcohol, smoke, or take certain drugs because it slows down my thought process. How can I use my overanalysis to my advantage? Well, I would say find yourself a difficult cognitive problem to solve, you know, pick a challenge, pick a challenge, but, you know, you also might consider you might consider talking to someone. You find relief when you drink alcohol. That might be that might be an indication that some of what you're overanalyzing isn't so much a consequence of excess cognitive power, but an excess of, of high negative emotion. And so that would be illustrated in, say, high trait neuroticism. We're going to release the big five aspect scale here later this month, and you'll be able to take that, and it'll give you a pretty good detailed description of your personality. And there's two dimensions of neuroticism, withdrawal and volatility. And, you know, if you're overanalyzing because you're, you're um, what do you call that, 
ruminating, that can be a, a consequence of high levels of anxiety. And the reason I'm suggesting that is because you said you find relief when you drink alcohol. And alcohol is a very powerful an anxiolytic agent, anti-anxiety agent. And so lots of people who have high levels of anxiety do ruminate and so overanalyze, let's say. And they find relief when they drink because alcohol is a primary anxiolytic, like Valium, like benzodiazepines and barbiturates. So... The fact that alcohol gives you relief probably indicates that some of what's driving your overanalysis is anxiety. And then you could, um, exercise can really help with that. I would also recommend, this is something really to think about, I don't know what your eating habits are like or your sleeping habits, but if you are an anxious person and that's manifesting itself in say neurotic overanalysis, there's two things you can do very rapidly, three things really, that will help quell that. Um, well, four things even. Number one, get up at the same time every day and I would recommend in the morning because that's when people generally get up and it's good to do what everyone else does unless you have a good reason not to. Number two, eat a large breakfast, right? Keep it carbohydrate light, you know, don't, don't eat to toast and like uh, and fruit loops, that's not going to do the trick. Make it fat and protein heavy and eat more than you want. You might say I'm not hungry in the morning, it's like this has nothing to do with what you want or what your appetite is. It's like you need to eat in the morning. If you're an anxious person and you don't eat in the morning and then you stress yourself out, your body hyperproduces insulin. It takes all the blood sugar out of your blood and that dysregulates your metabolism for the entire day. You can't reset it till you go to sleep at night. And I've had lots of anxious clients who would say fall into the overanalytic category who were like virtually cured by eating a large breakfast every morning. I would highly recommend that. You could try some physical exercise. Weightlifting is really good for curing anxiety. Another thing you could do, as I alluded to earlier today, is to make a schedule and start attending to your daily micro routines. So, you know, you got to figure out what your over analysis is. It might be cognitive, like maybe you have a very active mind, you know, you're fast verbally. Are you fast verbally? One way you can find that out is to do something like write down as many letters, words as you can that begin with the letter S, for example, in, in three minutes. Do that with a bunch of your friends. And if you're someone who writes down way more words than anyone else, then you're verbally fluent and that might be driving some of your overanalysis. But my guess is that you're suffering from some rumination that's related to anxiety. And so I told, told you what I think the simplest ways are to rectify that. So I hope that works out for you. I'm a clinical psychologist and here's one of the things you do to make people less afraid. You don't make the world safer. What you do is you, people tell you what they're afraid of and then you break it into little bits so that they can go confront them. You know, so maybe they're afraid of going to a party and you break that down and you say, well, do you know how to introduce yourself? And you say, well, I know I don't really even know how to shake someone's hand. And so then you practice having them shake their hand and introduce themselves because maybe they weren't taught by that by their half-witted parents when they were when they were young because they were ignored and so then you say well maybe you can go to a party for half an hour and all you have to do is introduce yourself to two people and we'll call that success and you build up their confidence and their confidence one step at a time and what happens the the clinical literature indicates quite clearly is you don't make people less anxious by doing that you make them braver it's not the same thing you don't make the world and its horrors smaller you make the person and their their, their capacity to deal with horror larger. You encourage them. You strengthen them. That's what you do at a university. 
you arm people with arguments, you, you hone their intellect, you, you help them learn to write so they can marshal their arguments, you, you help them learn how to engage in intellectual combat, because that's better than engaging in real combat. You make them, you make them hard and strong, you know, mollycoddle them and make them safe unless you're their enemy, unless you're trying to devour their spirit. And that's what we have in the universities. We have, we have the reign of the Oedipal mother who's, who's answered everything is, oh, just come a little closer, dear, and I'll protect you from the world. It's just like Hansel and Gretel's, the, you know, the, the, the witch in the Hansel and Gretel story. Well, my house is made of gingerbread. Just come in here and everything will be fine. Well, she feeds you candy to fatten you up so she can eat you. That's the archetype of a modern university. When did this start? When did the trigger warnings, when did the safe spaces, when did all this emerge? Well, it has its roots in the student radicalism of the 1960s, especially the far-left radicalism. It really popped up in the 1990s, in the early 90s, when uh, I was teaching in the U.S. at that point. And Which uh, university? I, I taught at Harvard from 93 to 98. And there was a fair push for political correctness, especially in, in the early part of the 90s. But, but it, it got pushed back down and disappeared and went underground. It went underground is more accurate. And then it's just come back with a vengeance in the last five years. And I think it's partly because we have all these radical left political activist d d departments at the universities, women's studies being at the top of the, of the list, that have done nothing for the last 30 years. It's even longer than that now. It's almost 40 years. 30 years, let's say, have done nothing but produce a never-ending stream of ideologically-minded counter-civilization political activists. And that's all subsidized by, by tuition and by the public purse. And that's another thing we really got to ask ourselves, is why the hell are we subsidizing revolution? Why are we doing that? It's crazy. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. What, so what exactly is going on with women's studies that you believe is fostering revolution? Well, you go on their websites and read, read what they say. I mean, first of all, for the, for the women's studies types, and this is, uh, what would you call it, um, false anthropology. There's this idea that way back when there was a feminist paradise, uh, and that would be like noble savage mode of living where everything was egalitarian and, and, uh, women dominated, it was a matriarchal culture. And that was put forward by a UCLA anthropologist named Gembutes. I can never pronounce her name properly, but I think I got it. And then that was overthrown by patriarchal institutions, start, essentially starting at about the time, say, of, the, of, of, of Judaism. And that was all overthrown, and ever since then we've lived in an oppressive patriarchy. And now that's what our culture is. It's an oppressive patriarchy. So they're pointing to one unsuccessful society that they believe existed, or did it oh, no, actually they, exist? No, it didn't exist. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. It's, it's, it's complicated, but it's the, it's the telling of a kind of psychological myth as if it was history. Whoa. And, and, and anyway, so, so the basic claim is that Western civilization is a brutish patriarchy and that whatever positive things it might have managed to accomplish were all accomplished as a consequence of oppression and, and, uh, and theft and that the appropriate thing to do is to restructure it from the bottom up. And they mean that. They mean that. They mean every single bloody concept. And you can marry that with modern postmodernism and throw in a nice dash of Marxism, and you have the, the ideological and motivated grounds for social revolution. And, and, and Just go online and look at a dozen women's studies websites. Just read them. You can see what they say. They produce political activists, and they're... Uh, goal is to restructure the patriarchy. Well, what's the patriarchy? Well, the patriarchy is Western civilization. And what does restructure mean? That's easy. It means tearing
tear it down and destroy it. Why? Because it's a brutish system that's predicated on nothing but oppression. It's nothing but a tyranny in the, in the eyes of the, of the radical women's studies types. Heterosexuality, that's a tyranny. Capitalism, that's a tyranny. Democracy, well, that doesn't even exist, and even if it did, it would be a tyranny. Everything's a tyranny. And so you can ask these, and, and what would they replace it with? They'd replace it with their own ideological utopia. Well, we've already had 100 years of that. We saw what happened. Oh, well, that doesn't matter. That wasn't real Marxism. That's what the bloody Marxists always say. That wasn't real Marxism. It's like, oh, how many millions of people have to die before you're convinced that it's real Marxism? And I know what they mean by that, too. They mean, hey, if I was the Marxist dictator, things would have gone a lot better. It's like, uh, you should think again, sunshine. If you were the Marxist dictator, things wouldn't have gone a lot better. So, and if you're the sort of person that thinks that if you would have been in control, things would have gone a lot better, then you're exactly the sort of person who should never be in control. So, and it's resentment. It's horrible resentment, you know. Well, that's an important point, because I think this is something that you... You know, I read about the Columbine massacre and the kids who undertook it. That'll make your hair stand on end if you want to read something that will really disturb you. Uh, reading Eric Harris's writings will really disturb you. No matter how much you know about human beings, reading Eric Harris's writings will disturb you. And Harris is a cane, you know. He says it straightforwardly. He hates human beings. He hates being itself. He would destroy everything if it was within his power to do that. And of course, him and his colleague were motivated to produce far more carnage than they managed that day. What was successful was only a fraction of what they had planned. And, and Harris said very straightforwardly that he, was, that he had set himself up as the judge of being and that it lacked all utility in his eyes. Human beings, certainly, should all be, should all be removed from the face of existence because of their pathology and the fundamental horrors of being itself. So there's nothing in the Cain and Abel story that isn't real. It's real, and Cain complains to God, as people will, when their dreams are dashed. And that goes for people who don't believe in God, too. It doesn't really matter, you know. It's harder, I suppose, if you're atheistic to figure out who to blame. But that doesn't mean that the sentiment... Well, <laughs> it doesn't mean that the sentiment is any different. Right? The same drama is being enacted. You shake your fist at the structure of being rather than at God himself, but it doesn't make any difference except in the details. So God responds to Cain and tells him that he's got no right to judge being before he gets his sacrificial house in order. And even worse, he says that Cain is the architect of his own downfall and the invited catastrophe in his own into his own house willingly and entered into a creative union with it and therefore brought about his own demise and it's that additional self-knowledge you can imagine too you know imagine that you're in you're facing your life you're facing the failures of your life and let's say that you've had a failed life and you're bitter about that and then you meditate upon it and you think well, why has this come about and then you think well perhaps I did something wrong you know when Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote the Gulag Archipelago which is the book that detailed the catastrophes of the Soviet Union and helped bring it down. There's one part of that book that just struck me so, so viciously when I read it. He, he was in the, in the gulag, and he, he was there for a very long time, and he said that he observed a variety of people in the camps who he really admired. They were rare. They were usually religious believers in his 
and his experience, who were not participating in the pathology of the camps at all, period, no matter what. He said he learned a lot from watching those people. He had a hard time believing that they even existed, that they could even exist. But he said that one of the things that he was brought to as a consequence of watching those people live their contract with goodness out, even under the most horrifying of conditions, was that it was possible that he himself was responsible for his position in the camp. Now, it's a very dangerous line of argumentation, you know, because who wants to be the one who blames the victim for the catastrophe, you know? You have to be very careful when you walk down that road. But Solzhenitsyn was speaking about himself. And he said, well, he was a communist, you know, and he arrogantly and forthrightly moved the movement out into the world and had not fully gone over his life with a fine-tooth comb to find out what mistakes he had made that brought him so low. But his contention eventually was that part of the reason that he ended up where he ended up was because he and many others had completely forfeited their relationship with the truth and allowed their society to degenerate into deceit and tyrannical catastrophe without mounting sufficient opposition. And so he decided when he was in the camps to straighten himself out bit by bit. And that culminated in the production of the Gulag Archipelago and that book really demolished once and for all any moral credibility that the communist totalitarian systems had left. And so one man in, in the depths of catastrophe who determined through good example, at least in part, to stop lying, produced a book eventually that demolished the foundation of the very system that had imprisoned him. And that is really worth thinking about. That's one example of the absolute grandeur of the human soul and the capacity for transformation that it has when let loose properly on the world. So let's say you're conceptualizing your own failure, you know, and you meditated on it and you come to the conclusion that God forced Cain to, hey, not only have things not been going very well for you, but it's actually your fault. And not only that, you brought it on yourself. And not only that, you knew it all the time. Well, then you might think you'll wake up and fly right, right? You'll get your wings in order and fly right. But there's no reason to assume that at all. And that's not what happens to Cain. That just makes him more bitter, right? And you can understand that if you think about it just for a second. It's like bad enough when something horrible happens to you. But then to have to swallow the additional pill, right? To have to take in the information that you could have done something different. It was avoidable. And you knew it at the time. And you decided to do it anyways. And I think people are in that situation a lot more often than ever anyone is willing to admit. You know, you have that little voice in the back of your head that says, don't do it. <laughs> and you override it. And you know it's arrogance that makes you override it. It's always arrogance, you know. It always warns you. It's always arrogance. Yeah, I can get away with it. It's like, no, you can't. I don't think you ever get away with anything. So, and maybe your experience has taught you different, but my suspicions are it hasn't. And if you think it has, well, the other shoe hasn't yet dropped. So Cain doesn't take the opportunity to let God's wisdom reorient his character. And that, that could have been the outcome. He could have got down on his knees, so to speak, and said, oh my, oh my God, I've been wrong all along. I've been living improperly. I've been making the wrong sacrifices. Abel deserves everything he has. I got exactly what was coming to me. You know, could I possibly now straighten myself out and, 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 and live in repentance and improve my position? But that's not what he did at all. He said, all right, fair enough. 
I get it. It's like, I'm going to go after the thing I most admire, and I'm going to destroy it, and I'm going to do that despite its cost to me, and I'm going to do that just to spite the creator of being. Well, that's exactly what Harris did in, at Columbine. It's exactly what he says, in fact, in his uncanny writings. It's why the mass murderers always shoot themselves afterwards, not before. Because you might wonder if you're so upset with the structure of being, why you don't just commit suicide in your basement? Why do you have to go out and mass murder before you top it off with a gun to your forehead? Well, you don't make the point as effectively if you just commit suicide in your basement. It's like, well, I, my life means nothing to me. But neither does anyone else's, and neither does the structure of being itself. And I'll take all my revenge as much as I possibly can. And then just to show you how little I care, I'll cap myself off at the end. And I would say also, people say all the time, I don't understand how that could happen. It's like, I don't believe that. I think an hour of thought, of real thought, real thought about your darkest feelings about existence itself, illuminates the pathway to that sort of behavior quite clearly. And I think if you, I mean, I might be wrong. Like, I might be a darker person than most. And it's certain. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> well, at least I think there are plenty of people out there who are sufficiently dark to know exactly what I mean when I'm saying these things. And I would also say that if it doesn't leap to your understanding how that pathway might be illuminated, then you need to know a lot more about yourself than you actually know now. Because whatever you might say about someone like Eric Harris, he was a human being too, you know. There's this idea in the New Testament that Christ was he who took the sins of the world unto himself. It's a very complicated idea, but part of, it, part, of it, part of it is associated with the idea that he met the devil in the desert as well. To take the sins of mankind unto yourself is to understand that within you dwells exactly the same spirit that commit the atrocities at Columbine or that ran the camps at Auschwitz and to actually understand that that's part and parcel of your makeup and then to take responsibility for it. And I think that in the aftermath of the terrible 20th century, that's what we're left with. We're left with the necessity to take responsibility for the most terrible aspects of ourselves. And that way, perhaps, we can stop those terrible things from happening again. That's all. And that also means, you know, that you don't look for the, you don't look for the, what would you call it, the purveyor of malevolence outside yourself. Right? It isn't someone else, even though sometimes it's someone else. You know, you know what I mean. It's like there are identifiable perpetrators, but that's not precisely the point. The point is something more like that the proper place for the encapsulation of that malevolence, at least the proper place to start, is within the confines of your own existence, and then perhaps within the confines of your family. And that way you're not a danger to those that you misapprehend as malevolent and evil, because you won't get your aim right to begin with. You'll identify them improperly, and you'll take your revenge in a manner that allows you to omit your own responsibility, to act out your unconscious desire for revenge, and to move the world just that much closer to hell. Well, so Cain kills Abel, and then Cain gives rise to his descendants, one of whom is the person who's the first artificer in weapons of war. And then comes the flood. Right? which seems perfectly, miraculously reasonable to me, because what those stories do, it's so amazing that 
the story of Cain and Abel segues into the story of the flood because it is the case that the catastrophes that beset society can best be conceptualized as the spread of individual pathology into the social world and the and the what would you call the the magnification of that pathology to the point where everything comes apart and I truly believe that if you familiarize yourself with the last hundred years of history that that's the conclusion that you would derive and the people who are most wise that I've read who commented on that say the same thing over and over which is the the key to the prevention of the horrors of Auschwitz and the gulag in the future is the reconstruction of the individual soul at the level of each individual and that's a terrible message because it puts the burden on you but it's an amazing message because it also means that you could be the source of the process that stops that catastrophe and malevolence from ever emerging again and you know it's hard for me to imagine that you have anything that could possibly be better to do with the time that you have left in some sense not worry about the consequences you know like I'm not going out of my way to cause trouble but if you're in a really and I'm telling you this can save your life at times especially if you're dealing with someone who's paranoid who's really paranoid you do not lie to someone who's paranoid and violent because as soon as you lie you're aligned with the forces that are persecuting them and they're going to be what because paranoia makes people hyper vigilant like they're on amphetamines in fact you can make people paranoid by giving them enough amphetamines and you can make paranoid people more paranoid by giving them amphetamines so they're hyper vigilant because they feel that everything is predatory and against them and so they're watching you like you would not believe way more than you're watching them and if you flicker a lie while you're talking to them and they're really on the edge you you're done so it's what's one thing to really know if you're ever in a really bad situation and you don't know what to do you tell the truth minimally you don't disclose too much that's just another lie you tell the truth minimally and carefully and hopefully and you might get out of it you might get out of it but if you falsify it look the hell out so the truth is a real is a real mechanism of protection in dangerous situations you know so if someone's trying to intimidate you and you you think they might get violent and they ask you if you're afraid then you tell them that you're terrified and that you hope that things will go okay or you say I'll give you an example one time I was in an airport and uh, we were in this lineup to fly back to Canada that said international flights and so it was a long lineup like 50 people and we got a, I got about three from the front there were still like 40 people behind me and the guy behind the counter decided that he was just going to shut down the line and that we could all go to this other line which was like 300 people long and I suggested that he not do that because we'd been standing there for half an hour and that he could just deal with the 20 of us that were left and and like have a clue and so he called the sheriff right away and this was down in Florida and it wasn't that long after 9-11 and so these guys came up and they were armed and they came and said looked at me because of course he told them that I was causing trouble which I wasn't I was just trying to not let what would you say an arrogant bureaucratic scum rat take advantage of me <laughs> so which is not the same as causing trouble so anyways, as soon as the cops came up, I said, look, I'm going to do exactly what you tell me to do right now, and I'm not going to cause any trouble, but I would like you to hear what actually happened. And so that, that's a good example of a situation like that. It's like, if someone's got you, 
no bravado. It's a very bad idea. And I was going to do exactly what they told me because, you know, they didn't know who I was and I didn't know what they had been told. So anyhow, the problem with lying is that it's a hydra. And kids find this out very early because you tell one lie and what happens is it has one of the consequences that you expect, maybe you get away with it, but it has three or four others that you don't expect. And so it's like it grows some, some complexity. And then you have to tack a lie on each of those little complexity outcrops and then they grow three more complexities and soon this little lie turns into a great big ball of lies and at some point it becomes painfully evident to everyone. And by that time you're in such, you see this with politicians like that guy who was sexting. Um, Anthony Weiner, yeah, perfect name for him, man. It's so funny. Uh, I, I shouldn't make that comment because it's so obvious, but it's still funny. But, you know, he, that's exactly what happened to him. It's like, it wasn't even so much the event, because, you know, people are stupid, they make mistakes, and actually the public is somewhat forgiving if you say, yeah, geez, I'm a real moron, and, you know, like, really, seriously, how could I do that? But I did, and, like, I'll try not to do it again. But what happens with politicians is, and, and I'm not speaking specifically of politicians, is they'll make an error and it gets exposed and then they make three others trying to cover it up. It happened with Nixon, for example, and then the whole thing just turns into a complete scandal. And maybe they could have got out of it at the beginning by just telling the truth. It's like, yes, I'm an idiot, you know. I'll try not to do it again. Well, that isn't what happens in this case. And Pinocchio grows this elaborate series of lies and the fairy is willing to be a little generous to him because he's little and cute and he's still a puppet and she tells him not to do that and that she's going to give him a pass this time but that she isn't going to be able to intervene on his behalf again and that's partly one of the things that's quite interesting about people who have Rousseauian ideas about children so children are all good and they get corrupted by society which is half true because they're also not good and they get shaped and, and disciplined by society but the, the Rousseauian types often are very interesting when their kids hit teenage years or when they're judging, like, say, criminal teenagers. It's like the child is perfect until they hit, like, 11, then they turn into a teenager, and then they're like thugs. So they go from good to thug in one move, you know. And, and you often see that in families, too, that have treated, especially their daughters, like a princess, you know, and then they hit puberty, and... and the parents who have princessed them to death have no idea what to do with them and so then they become demonized and so that the overly good child turns into the overly wicked teenager and sometimes they'll act that out too one of the things I've seen with girls who are held in princess esteem when they're little and their parents have too tight a grip on them and too much of a demand for good behavior is they'll find some nasty character to associate with who will tear them out of the family you know bikers are really good for that sort of thing so, and especially if you have some vengeful thoughts towards your parents. Nice biker is your perfect solution to that problem. Okay, we'll go through this scene and then I think we'll call it a day. Okay, so now Pinocchio's gone free. He's been united with his conscience. He's learned a couple of lessons. Don't be an actor and don't lie. And those things are quite similar. And especially once you're caught in your actor trap, don't lie to get out, because that will just make it worse. So that's the first of his trials, his moral trials on the road to becoming real. All right, now, now here we're at a different place. We're at this 
I think it's called the Red Lobster Inn, and it's a shadowy place, right? And it's kind of cave-like, so it's like the it's it's an underground entrance to somewhere that's not good, and so, and it's a foggy night, and you can't really see, so everything's murky and and gloomy there, and so inside we see the coachman, and the fox and the and the cat, and the coachman. The coachman's a bad guy. He's that mask that we saw. First of all, he's the archetype of that mask that was judgmental about Pinocchio having a voice. And it's like, one of the things Jung said about the shadow, and this is, I would say, one of the primary impediments to enlightenment, is that if you start looking at your motives for, for misbehaving, and, and, and I mean by that something very specific. I mean, I don't mean that you're misbehaving by someone else's standards. I don't mean that. I mean, when you know by your own standards that you're doing something that's devious or malevolent or underhanded, you know it, and you still do it. So it's your own judgment you're bringing to bear on yourself. If you look at why you're doing that, the longer you look at it, the deeper a hole you dig. And so this is the motif of Dante's Inferno, fundamentally. So Dante's Inferno is a story about, um, I can't remember his name unfortunately, might be Dante, in fact, although I don't remember. He's led into hell by Virgil, who's, a, who's an ancient, who is an ancient uh, philosopher, thinker. And hell has levels, and so the outer level is, and this is a Christianized version of hell, um, because there's hells of all sorts, but this is a Christianized virgin, version. And so the, on the outermost levels of hell, which is sort of like normal life, are the ancient philosophers, and they're still in hell because they weren't Christian, but it's kind of like it's like cheap motel hell instead of the full pit thing, you know? And so then Dante goes deeper and deeper into hell until he gets right to the bottom of it. And it's been a while since I read it, but if I remember correctly, Satan himself is encased in ice at the bottom of hell, surrounded by people who betray others. And so Dante's notion was that the worst of all possible violations of moral behavior was betrayal, and that they're in the deepest levels of hell. And I really like that idea. I think it's true, because if you trust me, then you're manifesting the necessary courage that puts someone through life. You know, if you're smart, you don't trust me because you're naive. You trust me knowing that I'm full of snakes and so are you, but maybe we could cooperate and move things along nicely, you know, and we could reduce each other to the word, to our word, and we could cooperate. But you're awake, you know, and then I betray that, then I'm undermining your necessary faith in in life and humanity. And you can really hurt someone that way, like the, sometimes it's self-betrayal, but you can really do someone in that, we can really traumatize them they can, so that they can't recover. And so it's a really terrible thing to do to someone. And maybe it's the worst thing, and that was Dante's idea. And it's tied in, that makes very interesting reading if you read it at the same time as Milton's Paradise Lost, because those are metaphysical explorations. This is what they are, they're metaphysical explorations of the terrible places you can end up and that people do end up, and also a metaphysical explanation of what spirit takes you there. So, because you might ask, well, why do you betray someone? And that is a deep question. And so you'll have your specific reasons, but under that there'll be some other reasons, and under that there'll be some other reasons, and under that there'll be some other reasons. And if you go all the way to the bottom, you come up with the ultimate reasons why you betrayed someone. And when you look at that, that will not be pretty. That's when your proclivity for evil, let's say, unites with the general human proclivity for evil, and you discover just exactly what you're capable of. 
And so Jung's notion was that, well, that was a full encounter with the shadow, which is, I suppose, partly what this course is about, because one of the things that I believe I told you at the beginning was that I was going to try to help you understand how it might be that you could be an Auschwitz guard. And to really understand that, that's a horrifying thing to understand. But I'll tell you, if you want to grow some teeth, that's a really good thing to understand. So we were talking about your capacity to negotiate before. Like if you aren't a monster, you cannot negotiate. But if, you, if you've got that under control, then you don't have to be a monster. It's really paradoxical. So if you're just naive, well, you end up in jail and a marionette master has control over you. That's not helpful. So that's not good. That just means you're useless and you can be manipulated. You won't go out of your way to be malevolent, but it's mostly because you just don't have the skills, the organizational skills, or, or even the depth to do that. You know, you're good because you're harmless. That's, that's not good. That's easily manipulated. And so you think, well, how do you get out of that? Well, partly you watch people because you know what they're like, because you know what you're like. And that, but you also know what you could do and would do if you were pushed. And so you don't have to show much of that when you're negotiating with someone for them to take you really seriously. So it's a strange thing, you know, but one of the things Jung pointed out too was that what you most need to know will be found where you least want to. You know, per like anxiety, that needs no explanation. Depression, that needs no explanation. What needs explanation is how the hell do you ever feel secure and together ever? Because that's the mystery. And partly the way you do that is by never going anywhere where you're upset. You stay in your territory. And so, like, this is your territory. And everyone knows how to act here, right? So you look around, and, and everyone's sitting and doing exactly the same thing. So you can ignore them. You can pretend that they're not dangerous. And most of the time, that will be correct. And some of the time, it won't be. And so you maintain your emotional stability by staying where you belong. And that's quite different than the psychoanalytic view, psychoanalytic view, you know, that you're, you're calm and well put together if your psyche is properly organized. It's like, this is partly why I introduce you guys to Piaget, because Piaget adds this other element, you know, he says something like, yeah, well, your psyche has to be organized properly, so you have to turn, you have to have turned everything that is a constituent element of you into a functional being, but that being has to be integrated in a functional game-like landscape, made of other people who are doing the same thing, and then it's the concordance between your structure and that landscape that makes you emotionally regulated. That's a way different theory. It's a much more sophisticated theory. So you could say, in some sense, the psychoanalysts had it half right. You know, and, and also, you can be individually pathological in a way that doesn't let you fit into society. But you have to understand the concordance between the social organization and the individual organization to get the, to get the picture right. Well, so what do the existentialists say? Well, it's something like, in the depths of your existential terror, the wisdom to cope with that terror will be found. So that's the fundamental idea. And, and then there's, a, there's a, a more profound idea in that, which I would also say is implicit in, in psychotherapy. The more behavioral the psychotherapy, the more implicit it is. But the idea is that, despite the fact that you are mismatched, that you're outmatched by, let's call it existential complexity. There's something in you that's far more complex than you know. And if you challenge it, it will respond by growing and developing, and that will not protect you against the 
existential anxiety. It's not like a shield or a guard that you're, that you're hiding behind. It's not a defense. What happens instead is that you actually learn how to deal with it. You know? So you think about it this way. One of the things that human beings are archetypally related to is fire. And of course, fire is something to be afraid of because it, it will burn you and it will burn everything down. But by the same token, when we mastered fire, which may have been two million years ago, something like that, because it looks like it was about then that we learned how to cook, which made a big difference. So, you know how chimps, I haven't told you the chimp story, I don't think. You know how chimps are sort of shaped like this? They've got this huge barrel-shaped body. Well, they spend like 12 hours a day chewing leaves. And why is that? Because you go out in the forest and eat leaves and see how much you have to chew so you don't starve to death. It's like leaves aren't edible, they hardly have any nourishment at all. And so, if you're a chimp, all you do is sit around and chew leaves, and then you need to have an intestinal tract that could wrap two or three times around this room so that you can digest the damn things, right? So that's chimp life. Well, human beings, we decided to trade intestinal length for brain. And the way we did that was by learning how to cook. And we mastered fire. And so you might say, well, is fire dangerous? And the answer to that is, well, it depends on how you react to it. It's exactly that, right? You say, well, fire is intrinsically dangerous. It's like, no, fire is multivalent. It has all sorts of possibilities, and some of them are extraordinarily destructive. But if you match your behavior properly to the phenomena, then you can master something like fire. Well, so the idea is that there's a potential inside you, whatever inside means, there's a potential that's part of you, some of it's genetic potential, and we know that because if we move you into a new environment, new genes will turn on inside of you and manufacture new parts of you. So, if you stress yourself optimally, if you push yourself out into the world, you can incorporate information from that journey, your, the exploration, that's a Piagetian idea, right? You, you go out, you learn something new, and you adjust your behavior to it, and you adjust your concepts to it, and then you can master it. But what Piaget didn't realize was that it also transforms your biological structure at a microscopic level, merely as a consequence of being put in the new situation. So the idea is that there's more to you than you know, and the way you call it out is by challenging yourself voluntarily in as many directions as you can manage. And that's a real thing. It isn't the construction of defenses. It's not something artificial like defense against death anxiety. It's actually how you learn to cope in the world. And the existentialists, I would say, despite their exceptional pessimism, were in some sense unbelievably optimistic, because what they would say, it's the opposite of a straw man argument. They would say, well, how, how weak are human beings? Ultimately weak. We're, we're up against an opponent, so to speak, a social opponent, say, which would be the crushing weight of society, and a natural opponent that is nature, which overwhelms you. We're up against the ultimate opponent. But, and so in that sense, we're extraordinarily weak, but it turns out that if we face that opponent, or that series of opponents, then all sorts of possibilities manifest themselves inside of us, and it isn't clear what the upper limits are to that. So, it's so interesting that it's a good example of how if you face what you're afraid of, you can find what you need. You say, well, the existentialists make the strongest case possible for, for the vulnerability of human beings, and out of that, they extract out the strongest case possible why human beings are strong and powerful. It's a very interesting paradox. And again, I would say that that's central to psychotherapy. One of the things, you, one of the things that's been learned about agoraphobics, for example, Agoraphobics, they're usually women, they're usually in their 40s, they've usually been dependent. Often someone close to them has divorced or died or they're having heart palpitations or something like that, sometimes as a consequence of menopause. And they've, they've accustomed themselves to seeking authority when challenged. But the problem with having heart palpitations is, is like, who's going to help you with that? 
Well, maybe you go to the emergency room, and that is what agoraphobics do. Most agoraphobics have been to the emergency room like a dozen times because they have heart palpitations, and then they feel them, then they get afraid and panic, then their heart rate goes way up, and then they think, oh my God, I'm going to die, and while I, do it, while I die, I'm going to make an absolute fool of myself, and everyone's going to laugh at me. So that's social rejection and biological mortality staring them right in the face. Well, so then you take an agoraphobic and you find out her background, because as I said, it's usually women. And then you start to expose that person to the things that she's afraid of. Elevators, maybe, subways, taxis. Actually, agoraphobics, really, what happens is they're not really so much afraid of, of places or things. What they're afraid of is being trapped in a place or a situation where they can't get away, and then if they had a heart attack, they wouldn't be able to get to an emergency ward. So that's really at the basis of the fear. And so, and the emergency ward, ward thing only helps to a limited degree because if you're having a heart attack and it's a really good one, you're dead. And so, the, so that's a place where recourse to authority is only going to take you so far, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's not a good solution to the problem. Well, so what do you do? Well, you expose the person maybe to an elevator and, you know, maybe the elevator is there and you tell them, well, can you get on an elevator? And they say, no. So, well, can you look at an elevator? Well, I don't think so. Well, how about some pictures of an elevator? So you show them some pictures of an elevator on Google and maybe one with closed doors and one with open doors. And you have them look at the damn thing because they won't want to look. They'll want to look away. But you can't look away. You have to investigate it. And then what your brain learns is that you're afraid of that thing, but you can scan it with your eyes and nothing happens. It's like the rat in the in the cage, sniffing and realizing, well, he can sniff and he doesn't die. It's like you can look at the picture of an elevator and you don't die. Well, you do that until you're bored. And that, that's, then you've learned that you can look at that elevator without dying. It's built right into you. Well, then maybe I can take you out and we'll look at a real elevator. And so you, I say, well, let's walk as close to that elevator as you can manage. I want you right on the edge between order and chaos, let's say. I want you to find that edge. Can you, can you stand here? Yes. How about here? Yes. How about, that's good enough. Okay. You're standing here. Order, chaos. That's where you're at. So what happens? You stand there and you notice you don't die. And you do that long enough so you're bored with it. And then you think, well, can you step three feet closer? Yes, you can. Well, and maybe after three weeks, you say, well, we're by the door. So here's the deal. I'm going to open that door and I'm going to hold it open and I'm not going to play a trick on you. And so what you're going to do is just poke your head in and take a look around. And so imagine doing that. Okay, so you imagine it. Okay, now actually do it. Then I let, no, I don't let go of the door. <laughs> That's what evil psychotherapists do. Anyways, then you get the person inside and what you see is they're looking at their shoes. They're in there, but they're not really in there. You say, no, 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 you've got to look. You've got to look in the corners. You've got to look at the numbers. You've got to see that you're in this thing that you're afraid of. And so you have them look around and look around and look around. They're like the rat coming, relaxing and starting to move. And you say, well, that's good enough. You can get out of the elevator slowly. Don't, don't rush out. Just go out calmly. Good enough. Go home, sleep for a week, and then come back and we'll do it again. And then if you do that for, it depends on how fast the person is capable of of advancing, but you can move people through phobias pretty fast if they trust you, and they have to trust you, and you, you have to be careful. You say, you say to them, look, we will stop doing this whenever you want, as soon as you say so. So this is, this is completely up to you. I'm not pushing you. I've got no demands on you. You want to be able to go outside again? We're going to walk through that, but 
You're not performing for me. This isn't a test. This isn't a contest. It's none of that. And when you're done, we're done. And you know, you can also have, help people like step through that. So I was treating someone who had a needle phobia recently and this person really felt trapped by authority figures that were medical and this person had their reasons for it. And so the first thing I did, because we were working with this needle, was say, you're going to practice getting the hell out of here. So I'll come at you, <laughs> I'll come at you with this needle, you know, I don't have a needle, but we'll pretend I do. Okay, so I'm going to move it towards you, and you're going to tell me to stop, and you're going to leave the room, because you want to see that you can. You know, and the person will think, well, I know I can. It's like, no, you don't know. You don't know. And so we're going to practice it, just like a kid pretending. And so I move forward with the, the non-existent needle, and they say, stop, and I stop, and they say, I'm leaving, and they leave. And they come back, and they're smiling, because they didn't know they could do that. You know, and part of them is still thinking, well, I'm a four-year-old kid and there's no way I can get out of here. No one's going to listen to me. It's built right into them. That's like Freudian regression or fixation at an earlier developmental stage. And if you watch that, if you watch for that in people, sometimes you can see how old they are. You know, if you, if you tap into something that they were afraid of very young, their whole facial expression will turn into that person, their body language and everything. It's very interesting. You have to watch very carefully to see it, but you can definitely see it. So, okay, so with the agoraphobic, you think, well, you treat the agoraphobic, you know, and then she can go take taxis and she can go on the subway and then she goes and has a big fight with her husband because she should have had one 20 years ago, but she was dependent and authority seeking. So she never would risk it because if she upset the relationship with authority, then it would expose her to the world. And so she was always in a subordinate and inferior position and a bit of a slave. And one of the things that often happens when you treat someone with agoraphobia is they get a lot more assertive and you think, well, one of the things the psychoanalysts objected to when the behaviorists started to use exposure therapy as a treatment was the idea that there would be substitution because the psychoanalysts would say you're not really afraid of an elevator so if i just treat your elevator fear because that's really not what you're afraid of the fear is just going to pop up somewhere else that'd be symbolic substitution but that isn't what happened what happened was is that if they learn to get on the elevator they're much more likely to take a taxi you think well why is that it's because they weren't learning that things were less frightening. That was the original idea. The original idea was counter-conditioning. That basically the person had been conditioned to be afraid of whatever it was, and then what you did was you put them in, in uh, encounter with that, and you let them breathe and relax, and then the relaxation they learned would counteract the panic, and that's why exposure therapy worked. But it turned out you didn't need to do any of that. It wasn't counter-conditioning at all. And so then you think, well, it's fear reduction or habituation. That was the next theory. Habituation is just take a snail, he comes out of his shell, you poke him, he goes into his shell, and then he comes out again, poke him. That's how you tease a snail, if you, if, you, you know, if you ever need to know that. So he comes out, you tap him, and you do that 10 or 15 times, the snail gets bored, and you tap him, he just sits there. Now, he doesn't get bored, because snails are probably always, always bored, but um, what's happened is that you've, in some sense, you've exhausted the nervous system representation. That's one way of thinking about it. Or you can think about it as a very simple form of learning. That's habituation. It's learn, you learn to ignore. And the idea then for a while was that you were teaching people to habituate to these things they were afraid of. But that also turned out not to be true. What you're actually doing is teaching the person to be brave. And that generalizes. So what happens is they think they're all pathetic and, 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 and fear-ridden and, and tiny and vulnerable and useless. And, and so they're acting like that, and then you say, well, look, this is a horrible thing you've got here. Why don't we see if you can manage it? And so they go through it, and they think, wow, I could do that. 
ha, I'm not as useless as I thought. And then maybe they try 20 things like that and they think, wow, I'm a lot tougher than I knew I was. Maybe they stand up a little bit straighter because they're a little more dominant and their serotonin systems start to work again. And then they're ready to take on the world more. And so maybe that's why they go home and have a fight with their stupid husband. And that doesn't necessarily make him very happy either. And that would be a, an example of psychotherapeutic resistance from a family member. Do you really want your person to be better? Right? If they're a little more assertive and a little less fearful, you might not be able to tyrannize over them so easily. And so it's not necessarily the case at all that you would be happy about that. So you've got to watch that sort of thing too. And maybe the person wouldn't even be that happy about it because they're getting all sort of secondary benefits from being you know, neurotic and martyred because that's a vicious weapon to be weak and useless. If you can wield that as a weapon, it's extraordinarily effective. So you've got to watch for that sort of thing to be working against your psychotherapeutic aims as well. Like psychoanalysis, existentialism seeks to utilize these very conflicts as avenues to the more profound self-understanding of man. In many ways, existentialism, existentialism is the unique and specific portrayal of the psychological predicament of contemporary man. Okay, so that relates back to the idea that modern people have been stripped of their archaic belief systems and are exposed more completely to to the possibility of a meaningless and painful existence with no superordinate meaning. Existentialism is not a school of thought nor reducible to any set of tenets. The three writers who appear invariably on every list of existentialists, Jaspers, Heidegger and Sartre, are not in agreement on essentials. Such alleged precursors as Pascal and Kierkegaard differed from all three men by being dedicated Christians and Pascal was a Catholic of sorts while Kierkegaard was a Protestant's Protestant. If, as often done, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky are included in the fold, then we must make room for an impassioned anti-Christian, Nietzsche, and an even more fanatical Greek Orthodox Russian imperialist. That's a little hard on Dostoevsky, I would say, but by the time we consider adding Rilke, Kafka, Ortega, and Camus, it becomes plain that one essential feature shared by all these men is their perfervid individualism. Well, so that's another element of existentialism. The locale of action is in the individual, and the idea is that, well, you're, you're fated in some sense to suffer and to be vulnerable as an individual. And so the right unit of analysis for people is as individuals. And again, I would say that's a primary tenet of psychotherapy. Um, there are family psychotherapy schools, for example, but individual psychotherapy is predicated on the idea that the individual is the right level of analysis, the correct level of analysis. Intense, intense, committed. I can give you an interesting example of this. One of the things that you guys are going to do is the, uh, you're going to do the personality analysis, which is part of this self-authoring suite that my colleagues and I have, have, have developed. Um, if you take maps of meaning, you would also do the future authoring exercise. Um, and we've done that for people, mostly university students, mostly in Europe. So I, I want to tell you an interesting story, and this has been replicated a couple of times. So in the business school at, at the Rotterdam School of Management, we've tested we put about 4,000 students through this future authoring program. That helps you make a plan for three to five years into the future. A plan and a counter plan. The plan is what you want to have happen. And the counter plan is what you really do not want to have happen. And then you make a plan to avoid the latter and to move towards the former. And uh, we compared their performance, three years per students' performance, to the performance of students three years before that. So it wasn't a perfect design, although we also did a controlled study that, that had the same results. So 
when, when we started, before we started having people do this plan, here was the ranking of performance. So we looked at ethnicity and gender. So the top performing people were Dutch national women. And they were a minority among the business students and probably a fairly selected minority. So maybe that's what accounted for their higher performance. Although women tend to be outperforming men in academic institutions pretty much all the way from elementary school through university now, which is an absolute catastrophe, but we won't talk about that now. So, and then the next highest performing group were Dutch nationals, and then the next highest performing group were non-Western ethnic minority women, and the lowest performing group were West, non-Western West, non ethnic minority men. And there were quite a few people in all those categories, so it wasn't just even a couple dozen, it was a couple hundred. Solid study. And within two years after doing the future authoring program, the non-Western ethnic minority men were outperforming the Dutch women. Their, their academic performance went up 70% and their dropout rate plummeted and it really looks good for decreasing dropout rate. And The reason I'm telling you about that is because people make the automatic assumption that ethnic disparities in ethnic performance are necessarily a consequence of sociological inequality, let's say, or sociological or, or political or economic uh, disparity, let's say. This was a pure psychological inter intervention. It wiped out the difference completely. And the Dutch women had actually improved slightly over that two-year period as a consequence of doing the program as well. So the men not only caught up to the women the way they were performing, but the way they were performing even better in the, in the aftermath of having a plan. So our provisional theory, we've replicated that at a couple of places. It works better for men. Now that's partly because women are already doing well. But we have a hypothesis that men are ornery enough so that unless they have their own plan, they just won't perform. I think it's associated with disagreeableness. Now we don't know that for sure because we haven't been able to disentangle that, but it's been a very striking finding. So anyway, so you can say, well, what's the right level of analysis when you're trying to, to improve human um, adaptation? It's a terrible word, but... But, but it'll do for now, because I can't think of another one. So, the refusal to belong to any school of thought, the repudiation of the adequacy of any body of beliefs, whatever, and especially of systems, and a marked dissatisfaction with traditional philosophy as superficial, academic, and remote from life, that's the heart of existentialism. And I think that if you're a good psychotherapist, you take an existential approach to your clients, and that's why listening is so important as well. Because it's really useful to have a body of theories about what might be up with a person and, and how you might approach the problem. And it, it, to have a, a whole array of psychotherapeutic tools, so those would be the, the theories that we've been discussing, opens up your, your, it makes you more skilled, it gives you more, more to offer. But you've got to be careful not to hammer the person into one of those schools. Now, sometimes that's useful because if someone comes to you and they're just chaotic, they've got no structure at all, if you approach them as if their problems were Freudian, at least it's systematic, and they can come out with a systematic understanding of their problem. And it might match to some degree. Like, you know, if you're having all sorts of anxiety and depression problems, we could probably look into your family history and identify reasons why that might be at least partly the case. And so at, that's at least a reasonable, maybe there's multiple reasons, but at least nailing one of them would be useful, more useful than nailing none of them. So, but what's better is to treat the person as someone you don't know. You have no idea what's up with this person, but you have a bunch of potential tools to use, and then you talk to them, and you treat them as if they're unique. 
and you figure out what is up with them specifically, and they tell you what's up with them, you know, they've got all sorts of cockeyed theories about who they are and what they're doing, and it's scattered and paradoxical, and it doesn't make much sense, and, and it's like a bad undergraduate essay, roughly speaking. It's full, well, really, it's full of internal contradictions, and it's incoherent. But if you listen long enough, that stops being the case. The person starts to pull themselves together with their representation, and they start to act that out properly, and that's great. So that, that's, that's, you could consider that applied existentialism. Now, the other thing the existentialists, they're kind of romantic, I would say. But the romantics are, are thinkers who, who deny the overarching supremacy of rationality and the intellect. They would say that to think about life as a problem that is to be solved rationally is insufficient because you're not a rational being or you're only partly a rational being. You're also an emotional being and you're a motivated being and you're an embodied being and that's a lot different than being purely rational. And I would say there's actually not even debate about that anymore because it, it, it's pretty damn clear that rationality cannot really operate unless it's embodied. So it has a, it has a set of operations that it can undertake that it's motivated so that there's certain things it's doing and other things that it, aren't, that it isn't, that it's emotional, because emotions are low-resolution, quick solutions to problems that can't be computed. So, for example, we get in an argument, and we just can't go anywhere. And at some point you say, well, to hell with you, I'm going home. You're angry. That's right. Do you win? Well, no, but you don't have to have the stupid argument anymore. So the anger is actually, it, it's a way of popping you out of a rational framework that there's no escaping from. You just say, well, this is stupid, and you leave. It's like, there's nothing rational about that, except that you don't want to stand there and argue till you starve to death. So, so emo you need the emotions to give you guides in situations that you can't really compute your way through. So, and only inside of that does rationality operate, with all of those underlying predicates. And the rationality has to be informed by the body, and by the motivations, and by the emotions for it to even operate. So the existentialists are correct about that. To, to d deny rationality as the fundamental principle of orientation. That doesn't mean that irrationality is the right approach. It means that rationality has to be augmented by other elements of being, elements of subjective being. And that's akin to the psychoanalytic viewpoint too, that you have to integrate your drives and emotions, especially anger and sexuality, into your personality. And also akin to Piaget's idea that the sub-personalities, the reflexes and so forth, have to be you know, have to be organized into a playable game so that everything is working in harmony. So, it's a similar idea. Now, the existentialists regard the division between object and subject as part of what's specifically torturing people who are outside of, say, traditional systems of belief. Because, and this is a tricky one, you know, scientists might claim that, well, the, the world is material and matter is essentially dead and without spirit or, or, or psyche. But, and it's easy as a consequence of adopting that viewpoint to think the same thing about you, that you know, you're ultimately a short-lived material entity in a meaningless material world. But the weird thing about that, and this is worth thinking about, is that if you're a scientist, you throw away the subjective as soon as you start operating the science. Because the idea is, well, you'll watch something according to a procedure, and you'll watch it, and you'll watch it, and you'll watch it, and we're only going to allow what all of you experience the same way to be real. Well, you throw out the subjective right at the beginning. And then you, so you can't say, well, there's no subject left in what results. It's, it's the reason there's nothing left in what results is because you threw it out to begin with. 
Now the question is, what should you do with it? When the existentialists say, well, you're alive. You can't just dispense with it. The fact that you're alive is the critical issue. And so you can use science as a tool, which is proper. But if you use it as a way of describing being, well, then you fall into this subject-object dichotomy. And underneath that is nihilism or the proclivity for totalitarianism. So they don't like that idea.